minutes, 25 seconds. 20 seconds and counting. T-minus 15 seconds, guidance is internal. 12, 11, 10, 9, ignition sequence start. 6, 5, 4, 3, 2, 1, 0, all engine running. Liftoff, we have a liftoff, 32 minutes past the hour. as Apollo 11 does its roll program, this podcast now does its roll program. The tape is rolling. Good morning, good afternoon, good evening, wherever you are in the world. My name is Grant Cameron, and you're listening to the Paranormal UFO Consciousness Podcast. Thank you for taking time from your life to be here. second section he's going to talk about the 1952 piece which is is a piece that um, Wilbur had said had been shot off by the US uh, um, one story has the Navy one has the Air Force shooting it off over Washington in 1952 Wilbur handled this piece and um, it is um, one of the pieces that when he was interviewed by the Ohio group they asked him did you send it back to the Air Force and Wilbur says no. He, in fact, Wilbur said a number of times, the Air Force does not handle this stuff. They, 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 that's not where the hardware is. He said, I, I sent it someplace else. And they said, well, was it to the CIA? And he said it was a small, highly classified group. And you have to uh, establish their identity for, them, for yourself. This is talking about the 1952 piece. Uh, a little bit late, perhaps, but something we can edit in here. Some of the factual material concerning that chunk. First of all, uh, it had a, we're getting back to radio again, an initial resonance. That is when it was found, this unidentified uh, chunk of material actually had a radio frequency resonance of 4.5 megacycles. That is, it actually had a sensitivity to 4.5 megacycles. This was when it was, however, initially found. After uh, a while, it had lost. After that two weeks, when it had gone down to its dull brown color, it had lost its uh, initial four and a half megacycle radio resonance and had also lost an initial high magnetic uh, permeability. It was very, very magnetic when it was first found. The material itself uh, was magnesium orthosilicate. This was the matrix of the material, magnesium orthosilicate. And upon uh, microscopic examination, it was found to contain thousands of little tiny spheres that were embedded all through the matrix. And these little spheres, we don't know why they're there, but they were in the construction, were approximately 15 microns in diameter, and they were dimpled. Each one had a slight dimple in, in one side of it. According to Mr. Smith, the United States uh, military intelligence has tons of hardware. They had readily admitted to this upon uh, interview by Mr. Smith during the time he was uh, director of this research project in Canada. And they have much film. Okay, that's basic discussion of 52 piece. There's a lot of material. There's there's some discussion. We're actually working on this right now. Whether there was one piece or two piece, 
one analysis, the CIA also had a piece which went to Wilbur Smith. It was, it was transported back by a, a guy by the name of Captain Donald Goodspeed. We know about that. It was 1954 they transferred that piece back. And Wilbur Smith also handled that, and he sent the analysis back to the Central Intelligence Agency. But we're working on right now whether there's one piece or whether there's two pieces. There's some confusion. The final thing I'm going to play is just a very small section. It was done last Sunday night with uh, Jim Smith. It's just confirming a story. The fellow that I'm going to refer to on here, uh, Buck Buchanan, was one of the Inner Circle members. One of the things I wanted to confirm. Yeah. Um, the other thing is um, Buchanan told a story about crash flying saucers, like you mentioned the bodies. Yeah. And I have a story about your father seeing the, uh, a crash saucer at a Air Force base outside of Washington. Was That's it, right. Did you ever hear that story? Yes. Oh, okay. So that is... That yeah. is Okay, your father told you that, or you just heard that from one of the other people? No, my dad told me that. Okay. Okay, okay that's just to deal with the, the story that I don't think has really been released. Um, the fact that Wilbur had seen a crash flying saucer, and which showed that he did have very high level um, contacts in the United States. Now, just to get to the, the last two pieces, the 54 piece, 52-54 piece, I have a lot on the website. You want, want to read about that. The St. Lord's slabs I'm going to do in just one second. The last piece on there is the Roswell. The metal guy, when the 1987, when the MJ-12 documents came out, I sent him the MJ-12 documents, and I sent him the material where Sarbacher was talking about the aliens and uh, what they looked like and stuff that he had remembered from uh, what he had overheard in the Navy building when all these guys were coming back from this this meeting at Wright-Patterson and uh, this guy was very paranoid as I told you and he didn't he never really wanted to talk and suddenly he phoned me and he was on the phone and he said uh, to me he was shocked at, at Sarbacher describing these uh, bodies as being insect-like he said well we're never talking about that I never heard of that any such thing that just that just blew me away when I read that and then he said and that 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 Roswell thing that that you described there that Roswell piece that super light stuff he says I'll tell you right now we handle that stuff Now, the St. Lawrence slabs was Wilbur. That's a terrible picture of it. I'll get a better picture someday. Um, it's it's a piece that appeared on the the um, the shore of the St. Lawrence River. There's actually two pieces. One was 3,000. One was 800 pieces. It was layered. It was layered between a tenth of an inch and eight tenths of an inch thick. And these pieces, it was all sort of in slabs. Uh, Smith described the fact that it had what appeared to be micrometeorites embedded on the outside of this thing. They were just fascinated. There's been piles and piles of studies uh, uh, on this material. They tried to cut this material. It would uh, flare up. They tried an acetylene torch and it would sort of flare up like an atomic bomb and started to expand and stuff. And they stopped doing that. They couldn't cut it with, uh, with, with the normal saws and stuff like that. And they had to chip pieces off. It was a very, very bizarre thing. But I don't think anything was... It, it's still around. It's uh, uh, in somebody's yard. I'm not sure exactly where it is right now. But there's still a few of these pieces floating around. Wilbur was very impressed with this piece of metal, but I just mentioned it. It was found on the St. Lawrence River just one day uh, up the shore, and there was lots of discussion, lots of people analyzing this, and the government was involved, and I don't know if they ever really rectified, but it was one of the pieces Smith talked about an awful lot. Okay, myths, I'm not going to spend too much time on this. How he died, there's always been a rumor, Phil Klass had the story, well, you know, you can believe what Wilbur Smith says because, you know, he died of a brain tumor, and he died of lower bowel cancer. He did not die of a brain tumor. That story has been going around for years. He didn't uh, head an official investigation. He was the head. What happened was in 1954, when the project was shut down, he was given, he was allowed to continue using government labs 
on his own, but he had to do it as a part-time project. So when the government wrote it up in 1968, they sort of left out the first part about the official uh, government program, and they said, well, we sort of believe it was something Smith did in his spare time. And everybody else who would answer questions on Project Magnet would read this 68 report and say, well, it was a part-time project, which got to the, the story that it wasn't an official project. It was an official project. It was classified secret, and it had three full-time engineers working for it. I have embassy documents on the website where you see them talking about uh, what, what, what's actually going on. And at the end of this, the top secret memo, when Smith uh, puts this top secret memo, you see his boss say, okay, go ahead with it and keep me informed. So it was an official project. Uh, he didn't have access to American super secrets. He sure did have access to American super secrets. Uh, he had seen the bodies. He had talked to a number of the, uh, the, the top people. The top secret memo should not have been top secret. I'll spend a couple seconds about this because this is one of the things that Dr. Salant, who carries a lot of weight, had come and said, well, I understand Smith put this on his personal papers, put top secret, and he really didn't have authority to put top secret on his personal papers. Um, if, if that is so, why did they not declassify the document? First, first of all, why is it in the government files? If it's his personal papers, why is it in the government files? And it was not declassified until 1979. It was, I've got, was top secret till 69. I, uh, that's actually a mistake. It was, it was moved down to secret in January of 1951, but it remained secret until 1969. In 1969, the Department of Transport was, not Department, the Department of Defense uh, was asked to declassify all the documents by a guy who was just a total idiot, didn't know what he was, he was Dr. Peter Millman. And um, Millman hadn't read anything in there, and so this guy, gets the, the material and he sees the project uh, uh, magnet report that says 60% chance these things are extraterrestrial or probability they're extraterrestrial and sees the top secret memo says this is the most highly classified secret and on my website I have what's called the declassification memo. It's, it's interesting to read. It was written in 1969, the same time Blue Book was being shut down. The Canadians were shutting their project down and they were going to tell the, the Canadian people there's nothing to this, you know, it's a waste of time. We're not going to spend any more on money on, on UFO investigation. And in this memo, two of the points he makes are when he sees the top secret memo, he says, well, this is the discussion behind uh, Project Magnet. And he underlines it. He said, at no time should this be made available to, this, to the public. Then he refers to the, to the uh, project second story uh, report, and he says the, the report that's in the file is the original, and it should not be destroyed until such time as this subject has cooled down. And that was when they were closing the projects. Both the Americans and the Canadians were closing the projects. That's, I just talked about that. Oh, this is still in here. Okay, hang on. I cut that. Okay, now we're into stories. How much time have I got? 25 minutes, I can get a few in. Okay, Mrs. Swan, I'm gonna talk about more tomorrow. I'm just gonna tell you one story. This is a very bizarre story we're working on. I've got a guy from NIDS who I've found has a file on Mrs. Swan that's as big as I have. And we've decided we're gonna, we're gonna get to the bottom of this story. One of the stories that's told uh, is, and it, it involves the Central Intelligence Agency. Um, Mrs. Swan was a woman who started receiving messages in 1953 from MAFA. And there was a bunch of people that were, uh, George Hunt Williamson was in contact with AFA. There was this telex operator. There was, there was a whole series of people who were in contact with AFA. But Mrs. Swan was the, was the key person. Mrs. Swan is getting these messages starting in 1953. And in 1954, the Office of Navy Intelligence, the head of the Office of Navy Intelligence, 
starts looking at her case. They send two guys from Washington, and their cover story is that they're trying to get air time or flight time. They fly up to Elliott, Maine is where she lived, and, and just as a side point, she lived within five miles of Betty Hill, and there's a story I have on the website called Good, Good Alien, Bad Alien, and it's a very interesting story, and it involves Mrs. Hill and Mrs. Swan. Mrs. Swan um, had these Navy officers, Navy intelligence officers, come to the house, and one of them said, boy, I'd like to do this. Can you show me how to do this? She said, well, yeah. So he sat down in the chair. She put her, her hand on his right arm. And this was done by automatic writing. And suddenly his hand started to go, and he's writing out this message. And it was signed AFA. And Mrs. Swan said, that's not the AFA. That's the evil ones. You're in contact with the evil ones. You don't listen to those people. You're, you're talking to the wrong person. And this gets into the whole story about the evil versus the good alien. Uh, and Mrs. Hill, and it's a very interesting story. But anyway, um, she tried to discourage him, but he, he, he wouldn't have nothing. He thought this was the greatest thing. He went running back to Washington, and he went to what's called the uh, Naval Photographic Interpretation, or, yeah, Interpretation Center, which is the most highly classified photographic lab in the United States at the time. It was the lab that analyzed all the U-2 photographs, and all the SR-71 photographs. It was run by a guy by the name of uh, Arthur Lundahl, who is a key person. Some people may not have heard of him. He was a key person in the UFO thing. In fact, that 52-54 piece, Lundahl handled that. The, the, this, the piece that was inside the CIA was brought to him, and he looked at it. He was the guy that did the... He ran the Navy photographic lab when the Robertson panel was in session in 1953. He did all the photographic analysis work. He was in charge of it for the Robertson panel. He was the top expert on UFOs. Um, supposedly, he supposedly briefed at least three presidents on UFOs. Uh, he was a very high-ranking fellow. Uh, Todd Zeckel, who started the uh, Citizens Against UFO Secrecy in the 1970s, knew him, said he had been in his house. He said uh, it was the biggest UFO library he'd ever seen in his life. He said it looked like the guy had every book that had ever been published on UFOs. Anyway, th this Navy intelligence officer goes racing back to uh, Washington. He goes up to this Naval Photographic Interpretation Lab, and he goes to Arthur Lundahl, and he says, look, look, we, we, and he tells him the whole story about what happened and whatever. So they sit him down in a chair, and this guy goes into trance, and he starts channeling this AFA. So Art Lundahl, who is like... Uh, won the National Security Council Award for discovering the, the missiles in Cuba, was the guy who went into Kennedy's office and briefed Kennedy on the missile Cuban crisis, uh, starts asking him these questions. And he's saying, you know, they're asking him questions like uh, the, the orbit, how, how, you know, how, big, how far away from the sun is the orbit of Jupiter? And she's an he's answering all these questions, very technical questions. They are very impressed. And so Lundahl says to him, he says, well, it's very nice that you're talking to us, but can we have proof that you exist? Alpha says, what do you want? Lundahl says, can you show yourself? Alpha says, when? Lundahl says, now. Alpha says, go to the window. They go to the window, these Navy intelligence guys and Arthur Lundahl and this flying saucer flies by. And the latest story I heard apparently through Valet, who interviewed Lundahl, was it was sitting right above the Capitol. Now, in later interviews, Lundahl is interviewed by this uh, a number of times, and he denies this story. He absolutely says, absolutely, on no, in no way did I see a UFO fly by the window, and absolutely, this is garbage. I felt sorry for this poor guy. If his officials had known that he was into this kind of stuff, he would have lost his job, and he, he denies the whole thing. But apparently, he, had, he did confirm it to, to uh, Jacques Vallée that he did see the, the object go by the window. He writes a memo 
that uh, Robert Emenager, when they were putting this documentary together in the 1970s, and he wrote a book, he talks about this memo, this uh, CIA memo where Arthur Lundahl writes up this, this entire bizarre story about uh, this alien and flying by the window and all this sort of stuff. And what happens is they call in Major Friend, who was at the time the temporary head of Blue Book. Friend is flown from Wright-Patterson to Washington. Two days later, they have a meeting inside this naval, uh, this uh, CIA lab. It tells them the whole story. Friend is quite impressed with this whole story. Friend says, okay, let's get the guy in the room. Let's, let's put him back in trance and let's talk to the alien. So they do the same thing for 15, 20 minutes. Friend, the head of Blue Book, is sitting in there. Arthur Lundahl, CIA intelligence officers, the whole bit, they're all sitting in this room and they're, and they're channeling this, this AFA. And... Um, friend, they, they try to get the, the alien to fly by again, and Afa just says, the time isn't right. So everything goes, and, and friend said something to the effect, I won't quote him, but he said something to the effect that of all the stuff he saw in Blue Book, this is one of the most impressive things he'd ever seen. Uh, friend goes back, friend writes a memo to his commander, who I just forgot his name, General Dugan was his commander, he writes a letter telling him about, my goodness, they've, they've got another meeting set up and they're going back to Washington again, and we've got to do something. This woman should be investigated. This is, this is just a bizarre case. Tells him the whole CIA story. And he leaves this memo on his desk, and J. Allen Hynek apparently was at the site, I guess, at the same time, or maybe they left it out on purpose, I don't know. But anyway, um, Hynek is in the office, and they're in a meeting, and this memo is sitting on the top of the desk, and... and Heineck is reading this whole story about this woman channeling this, this alien thing, so he handwrites this entire memo. Now, we finally recovered the entire thing, this, this memo that was written to the general. The CIA memo, uh, Robert Emmerenager had it. Now we're trying to, to pin it down. Uh, there was an article done in the late 70s where Coleman, who was the spokesman for Blue Book, had said that he had seen the memo and it was legitimate. It was a, C a legitimate CIA memo describing this, this incident inside this lab. I contacted Coleman and I said, did you see the memo and was it legitimate? He wrote me back and he backed off a bit. He said it looked legitimate and even despite that, he said whatever Robert Friend goes because his word is impeccable. So that's the one story. that Mrs. Swan, there, there's stories like that all over the place. This Navy intelligence officer, in fact, uh, had a, there was two. There was a, one of the security guys for the uh, Aeronautics Bureau inside the Navy Department had a, an association with Mrs. Smith that lasted for 30 years at least. This Navy guy that did the channeling thing had an association that lasted till 1979, and he wrote a letter back to Mrs. Swan, and he said this alien uh, had ruined his life. He was dreaming about this alien. He just The alien wouldn't leave him. And uh, she told him, I told you so. You shouldn't have listened to the, You didn't listen to me. I told you that was the evil ones, and you wouldn't listen to me. And I asked her to confirm this. I said, I wrote Mrs. Swan when she was still alive, and I said, did you have an agreement with the U.S. Navy to be quiet? And she, she said, yes, there was an agreement to be still. She actually, the U.S. Navy intelligence worked with this woman for, for years. The, the final contact is, is a story that's up there. The final contact involves the Flying Saucer Observatory. What Smith was trying to do is he was trying to uh, get a UFO to fly by. There's FBI documents that deal with Mrs. Swan. Uh, J. Edgar Hoover handled this case for the FBI. It was on J. Edgar Hoover's desk. There was a memo that uh, was provided to him that gave the details of Mrs. Swan and the stuff that she was able to do and uh, this sort of stuff. And in this um, memo, um, 
they discuss the fact that Smith is there. It's blacked out, but, but if you know who's, who's involved and who's in the room, you know that Wilbur Smith was in the room at the time. And Wilbur Smith is trying to make an arrangement through Mrs. Swan to get Affa to fly. He always was trying to get Affa to fly by land. I want to talk to this guy. I want to see this guy. And Smith said he knew what Affa looked like. He said, if I saw him on the street, I would know him. They were able to project uh, mental images into his mind of, of equipment and, and themselves. And he, he, so he said, I would know Affa if I saw him on the street. But um, he was trying to get them to land. And August the 1st, 1954, according to the FBI document, Affa was supposed to fly by and radio, there was going to be a radio contact with Smith. They were going to try to fly by the Flying Saucer Observatory. Well, Affa, as, as always happened, Affa was always late for everything. And Affa didn't appear on August the 1st. Exactly one week later, Smith had run this Flying Saucer Observatory for a year and nothing happened. On the 8th, exactly one month, one week after this FBI contact thing was supposed to have taken place. Uh, Smith is in the, the observatory and in the quotes you'll see him talking about this, what happened. Uh, I heard it from one of the radar techs who was in the room and he said the bells went off and uh, the machines were just, the, the, the needles were just going all over the place and they knew this was no plane, this was, they had never seen this type of signature on the, on the stuff. And they ran outside and they, they looked up and there was a thousand foot ceiling for the, for the clouds. So whatever it was, it was above the, the clouds. So Wilbur Smith could never confirm. The press got involved. This was August the 8th, August the 9th. The press got involved. Smith had said, well, we don't know for sure, but um, if the machine wasn't working, we might have detected the first flying saucer over Ottawa. Now, this is the official Canadian government guy. And, of course, the media goes, the government has detected flying saucer over Ottawa, and the very next day they shut down Project Magnet, and that was the end of it the very next day. And Smith did blame well-meaning journalists for his demise. The anti-gravity experiment. The anti-gravity experiment Smith worked on uh, a great deal. It was, a, a, it was a, a plate. It was a copper plate. And what he, his idea was that if you could get a rotating magnetic field, that it would produce anti-gravity. So what they did is they got this six-inch plate. And what they did was they, they cut a part of the plate out. And they would stand up ceramic magnets into the plate around the edge of the plate. So they would have a wall of ceramic magnets going around this thing. And it was ceramic magnets, instead of having the, the polarity on the, on the top and the bottom, it had it on the, on, the, on the faces of the magnet. So you'd have, I don't know what it was, all the positives on the outside or all the negatives on the outside. And they would spin this plate at you know, 15, 17, 18,000 revs a minute, and they would weigh this thing, and it, it would weigh less. They would, they would, he said we could prove that we could monkey with gravity, that we could actually change gravity, and they were weighing this, this, this plate. Now, in near the end, Mrs. Smith talks about the fact that the, the Canadian government stole 36 of his patents, that the only one that he ever got through they bought a car with, and the, guy, the government was absolutely furious, that Wilbur Smith, they figured that because he worked for the Canadian government, anything that he developed in terms of radio equipment was developed on Canadian government time and with their material. And she said they would actually, if, once he drew the plans out for something, she said they would actually walk into the house, down the stairs, and take the equipment and walk out. Now, so at the end, Wilbur Smith had this anti-gravity thing. He took it to a guy by the name of Dr. Rose at the National Research Council. And he went to Rose. He said, I've got this thing. I can, I can actually show that we can, we can tinker with gravity and this thing works. And Rose says, okay, Wilbur. He says, write it up and we'll take a look at it. And he said, no, you come and take a look at it or I'll bring it down here and you guys can do some tests on it. And he said, no, Wilbur, write it up. Wilbur says, I'm not writing it up because he knew as soon as he wrote it up, that was the end of it. They would take it. So uh, his wife told me, Wilbur came home that day. She said, he said, the world is not ready for this. He took it apart, 
and she said he never ever spoke about it again in his life and he had worked on this thing for years he just said it the world is not ready for it that was the anti-gravity experiment the last story I can get in here is um, the government meets AFA it's a very bizarre story and it sort of indicates there may be a second uh, project there may actually have been a top-secret program um, during the 19 during 1954 if you recall back Eisenhower there was a rumored story that Eisenhower had been to Edwards Air Force Base to meet with live aliens the story has sort of changed in the last couple of years to dead bodies it was live aliens it was always live aliens and that was February the 20th of 1954 um, in 1954 Prince Philip was supposed to have had some sort of uh, contact they were setting up a contact through a reti retired general the Canadians were also trying to land a UFO at uh, what is our equivalent area 51 it's called Suffield uh, station it's in Alberta it's out in the middle of nowhere it's a restricted fly zone it has basically like area 51 they did chemical weapon uh, research. They, uh, I would talk to different people trying to get material out of there and guys, so I don't know anything about the UFOs, but you find out about that town. They blew up a town. We were there. They blew up a town and some guy got killed and, and they were trying to sort of simulate uh, a nuclear explosion and they were, they did all sorts of bizarre stuff at, at this site. And um, there was a story came out in 1967, the uh, Minister of Defense in Canada, the Canadians in 1967 was the Canadian Centennial. And Every little town has their little centennial project. They build a rink or they build a building and it's their centennial project. St. Paul, Alberta decided their centennial project would be a UFO landing base. So they built this UFO landing base and I don't know how this guy got roped into this, but the secretary, or they, or we call him the Minister of Defense, shows up to open this UFO landing base. So he comes there and he says, oh, this is kind of interesting because uh, uh, 13 years ago, the Canadian government actually uh, opened a base for UFOs to land and uh, nothing ever landed there. So uh, for whatever reason, the researchers in 1967 didn't pick up the story. I picked it up in the mid-1970s. I started writing this Paul Hellier, this minister, and I said, well, it sort of puzzles me. You know, you, you opened this base for UFOs to land. The, the obvious question is, how do the UFOs know where to land? Like, I mean, Canada's a big place. I think now it may be the biggest country in the world that the, the Russians have, have broken up. But it, it's a huge, huge country and a lot of open space, and I was, it always puzzled me. So when I went to meet with Mrs. Uh, Swan, or Mrs. Uh, Smith in 1977, I took the article, which was printed in a number of major dailies in Canada, and I took it to Mrs. Smith because I sort of figured I knew what was going on, and I said, can you read this article? And she reads the article. Yeah, they, you know, they built this UFO landing base for UFOs to land, and Kehoe actually talks about this. And I said, was Wilbur involved? And she said, yeah, he was involved. She said, uh, I said, well, can you tell me what happened? She said, there was, there was a group. There was the Royal Canadian Mounted Police. There was the Department of Defense. And there was the Prime Minister of Canada were involved. Wilbur had convinced them to a point that he was in contact with an alien. And if people would quit shooting at him, Wilbur might be able to get this guy to land. So the agreement was made. The Royal Canadian Mounted Police the Department of Defense and the Prime Minister's office agreed that they would allow this, this UFO to land. Um, then AFA wanted an agreement that once he met with whoever they were going to meet with, and this is 1954, um, they would allow him to take off without trying to stop him or do anything. The RCMP agreed, the um, Royal Canadian Mounted Police agreed, 
and according to her, the government went into a cabinet meeting and they couldn't give a 100% guarantee that they could do this. And so Smith said, okay, that's fine, it's called off. We're not landing anything there if we can't get this absolute agreement. So the government actually tells a story, then they tell their version of the story, they open this base, nothing landed, therefore UFOs don't exist. The, the fact of the matter was that um, there, there, there was actually um, an alien involved that they were actually ha answers the question of, of where the how the aliens knew where to go, and this is the article. This is out of the uh, Ottawa Journal. Talks about the uh, the UFO landing site. Now the final point, and then I'm finished, is to go to uh, the final slide, which is um, the um, the material that's uh, that all the documents I'm referred to, the quotes, all that sort of stuff is available on the top website, the Smith HTM site, and the Wilbur Smith tape, uh, the, where the son is talking about the hardware and he talks about uh, all sorts of bizarre stuff. It's a 45 minute interview. It's very good to, to check in on. It's at this virtually strange, it was uh, Strange Days Indeed, which is a, a show that runs Sunday night. It's um, a radio show. You can pick it up on the internet. It's it's extremely good show. They have a lot of very good witnesses, a lot of good uh, people on there. It runs for three hours. They're the ones that actually did the interview, and that's the site. You can look it up. It's tape number 179. And basically, that's it. I'm finished. Thanks. Okay, ah, uh, that's the hardcore. They get up on Sunday morning. Yeah. Okay. Well, we've got some good stuff on Sunday morning, too. Um, if you heard Grant's talk yesterday, he's back with more, and it's just as good, I'm sure. Uh, in 1954, our radar picked up two objects orbiting the Earth. You may have, if you read Donald Kehoe's Flying Saucer Conspiracy, you remember he discussed this. And it was claimed, well, you know, it was asteroids or meteors that just accidentally came into Earth orbit. Uh, 400 miles out, 600 miles out, I think. One, one at four and one to six. And we didn't hear a lot more about them. Well, you're going to hear a lot more about them this morning. Uh, so welcome back, Grant Cameron. Okay, thank you. Um, this morning, as I'm doing my presentation, I would like you to um, play MJ-12. This morning, I want you to pretend that you're in the situation where you've been given the problem of dealing with this, this whole subject, because it sort of puts everything in perspective. You'll see it in a different light if you look at it from their side of the story. As Lou said, it, two objects were picked up. It was actually in the fall of 1953 by U.S. Air Force Experimental Long Range Radar. Let's get on the screen here. And the radar was developed by the, the Air Force and they had a number of incidents with, with the radar and what I'm saying is you can pretend that you're the, the MJ-12 people and you've just picked up these two objects rotating around the Earth, 400, 600 miles out. 
And the military mind, if it doesn't have an enemy, usually it tries to find an enemy. They have to be on alert. They have to try to uh, determine when the enemy attacks. And one of, there's a story told about one of the experimental long-range radars. They were had the thing running, and suddenly they detected the Russian bombers coming. And they immediately alerted the Strategic Air Command to get the bombers up on their way to Russia. And a few minutes later, they said, whoops, made a mistake. They had picked up the uh, moon coming up over the horizon. Thanks. And Bill Cosby tells a story about whoops. He, t he tells about a guy being operated on, and they're giving him just a local anesthetic. And the doctor's operating away, and the doctor says, whoops. And the guy says, what do you mean, whoops? What's, what's going on? And the guy says, ah, don't worry about it, sir. It's nothing. And he says, no, don't tell me that. You tell me what happened. I'm not stupid. I know what a whoops means. So the, the situation here is that the, the basically the, this, the Pentagon goes into a state of, of panic. Three tracking stations are set up. One is set up in Arizona, one in New Mexico, and one outside of Berlin, Germany, to try to track these two objects. The story, an important part of the story is that they're picked up in the fall of 1953, but the story doesn't break until August the 23rd, 54, in Aviation Week and Space Technology. The story is run the very next day by the New York Times as well. And in their story, they say that the, um, the Air Force has picked up two objects and that Dr. Lincoln La Paz has stated the two objects are natural satellites. Lincoln La Paz has been uh, tied in with UFOs a number of times. He was tied in with the, 19, uh, the late 1940 Green Fireball incidents. He was also tied in a number of times with um, UFO crash recoveries. And this is because La Paz was an expert at meteorites. He was able to determine when a meteorite came in, he could go and talk to witnesses at the angle a meteorite was coming, all this sort of stuff, and he could determine where the object had come down. So what you've got to remember when you're, when you're looking at this story is that from the fall of 1953 till August the 23rd and 24th, this story is completely secret. The public does not know these two objects are going around. Now, a number of the things that happen, and some of this is going to be speculation on my part, you take a look and you look at some of the incidents that have been written up in UFO books, and you look at them again in terms of looking at them from the perspective that the military secretly is watching these two objects. One of the incidents is a woman, a columnist by the name of Dorothy Kilgallen, who writes a story in February of 1954. And this is something I really didn't have much time to check on. But as far as I know, Dorothy Kilgallen didn't really write UFO stories. She's famous for writing up a story that the British based on high-ranking sources that she had talked to, the British had recovered a flying saucer. That was one of the stories. This is the other story that I know that she wrote about UFOs. And as I said, see this in perspective of the flying saucer, or these uh, objects going around the Earth. Kilgallen wrote, flying saucers are regarded as of such vital importance that there will be a special meeting, a special hush-hush meeting of world military leaders this summer. 
Now the question that arose to me after I'd read this before and, w and when I looked at it in perspective of this, I said, well, why would you call, put the capitalist and the, the, the fascist and the, the communist world military leaders all in one room? Are they going to discuss flying saucer sightings? Is that why you would call all these people together to share the, the secrets of UFOs? In another time, in another place, in a, in a White House, there was something called my fantasy. And it goes like this. I've often wondered, what if us, all of us in the world discovered that we were threatened by an outer, a power from outer space, from another world? Wouldn't we all of a sudden find that we don't have any differences between us at all? We were all human beings, citizens of the world, and wouldn't we come together to fight that particular threat? So if you look at the Kilgallen thing in terms of the, the two objects, and what Ronald Reagan called my fantasy, it would be a speculation on my part, but I think fair speculation, that perhaps the military was looking at these two objects as the alien invasion. Because one of the things that Kehoe doesn't really spell out is the fact that these were huge objects. Or he, he, he says they're huge objects, he doesn't really give the size of them. Later on, a size, I believe, 190 miles across is given, but that's given by somebody else. So if you're the military and you're sitting there looking at this thing, you're looking, at the you're looking to try to speculate, well, is this an alien and his wife and two kids on a summer vacation, or is this an, uh, an invasion of the 8th Army? Somebody's bringing everybody. Let's go to the next screen here. The objects, according to Kehoe, his Air Force sources were stating that um, the objects were leaving orbit. They were not able to track these objects constantly. They would track them, they would lose them, they would track them, they were losing, losing them, which would clearly indicate the objects were not natural um, satellites, as Lincoln La Paz was written up in the New York Times as speculating. The Aviation Week, when they wrote up the story, they referred to it as the Pentagon, Pentagon scare. The New York Times stated that the, the Air Force was thrown into a flap through the whole summer of 1954 over these, over these two objects. Another item that I think is important, and, and sometimes in ufology we forget that you have to look at things in light of when they happened and not impose our views today. In 1954, the Mars factor was very big. 1952, there was a large flap of UFO sightings around the United States, and it occurred at the closest approach of Mars to the Earth. Even Wilbur Smith talks about this, the 27-month period, that every 27 months when Mars came close, the number of UFO sightings increased. The approach, the closest approach was July the 2nd, 54. And what I'm talking, a number of these dates are very important. All these dates, will, I'll tie them all together at the end. Dr. Fred Singer um, was advising Eisenhower that he was an, he was an advisor on outer space, to, uh, sp space matters to Eisenhower. And NICAP wrote him up as advising Eisenhower that Phobos, one of the planets or the moons around Mars, was possibly inhabited and hollow. Now, when I put this thing up on the internet a couple months ago, James Oberg immediately jumped on this like Clinton on an intern. And he basically, every, every time I post anything, he jumps on it. And he came across and said, well, Fred Singer is denying this. 
And basically the, the denial, the way I read it, from the part he quoted, and I don't know what he left out of what Singer said, was that he had done calculations and determined that Phobos was not hollow and that um, therefore, according to Oberg, I was totally wrong. And I happened to be on the road at the time, I was at the University of Wyoming, and I had to go race into the library and start pulling the books, and I pulled Oberg's book on, on Mars. And I found actually in Oberg's book, this whole reference to Singer doing these, these mathematical calculations. Found out they're done in the mid-70s. So I posted back to Oberg and I said, well, I can see that, but you gotta realize that something that he may have calculated in the 1970s is totally irrelevant to what he may have told the president in the 1950s. At that point, Oberg gave up, and some people said it's the first time I've ever seen him give up on an argument. He said, okay, have it your way, enjoy. So there were people in, in this time period who were very concerned about Mars being inhabited. In April 1954, now this, we haven't, I, Pick this up, and now I'm going to have to check this based on the last item that I have listed here. Reader's Digest, fairly conservative magazine, runs a piece in April 1954 talking about Mars, the, the Martians coming to Earth and why they would be coming here. And I guess the, a lot of this is based upon the fact that Mars is approaching and there's a lot of articles and stuff being written. But it's a dead serious piece. And what they sort of look at and they say, well, perhaps they're, they're coming to Earth because their atmosphere is bad and they, and they have to get a, they're, they're out of close, closing in on losing all their oxygen. That's the one piece. The, the, other, the next piece is the more important piece. This is a piece that was written by a high-ranking Air Force intelligence colonel. Kehoe talks about this article, and if you read his book, he was, he was absolutely shocked that this article was being circulated around. O and Odell was this high-ranking officer, but the article was also approved by Air Force Security, which is another key point to remember. And the article was entitled, Planet Earth, Host to Extraterrestrial Life. The first line of the article starts as follows. Granted the superintelligences in another solar system are looking for a suitable planet for a second home, why would the Earth be singled out? And again, I say, look at this in perspective of the people who are watching these two objects secretly rotate around the Earth. The article goes on to say, to speculate, that aliens are now observing our planet. And that the possible reason is that they have a dying planet and they're looking for another place to, to be. Now they took the article, the, the Pentagon took the article and they circulated it among the White House press corps and they were trying to get somebody to run this article. The problem was there was two conditions to running the article. First of all, you were not allowed to say that a high-ranking Air Force intelligence colonel had written the article. The second thing they weren't allowed to do was they weren't allowed to say that Air Force security had cleared this article. They were just simply supposed to run the article. And of course, nobody in the Washington press corps would pick up this, would, would take the bait. Nobody would, would publish the article. Kehoe wrote, read the article and he was very shocked and tried to figure out why the Air Force was trying to circulate this theory about the aliens surveying our planet and a possible takeover. Now, in the spring of 1954, there was um, a big appropriation of money. $24 million of that money went to 
the Air Force for what they called secret projects. Two, two of the people that wrote about this were Major Kehoe, wrote about these satellites. The other guy who was writing about these satellites was Frank Edwards, who was the Art Bell of his day. He had 10 million listeners, had written a number of books on UFOs. And Edwards stated that his sources told him that most of or all of this $24 million appropriation given to the Air Force was to track these two satellites and to try to figure out what, what was going on. As I said, and dates are very important. May the 5th, May the 6th, and May the 13th, you have these two big objects rotating around the Earth. On May the 5th, 6th, 13th, this is kept secret as well. The, the Air Force is able to keep this secret. Large objects, are, one large object is seen to come down over top of the Pentagon, over Washington. It's up at 90,000 feet, they scramble the jets, they bring the jets in, and the jets just circle around, there's nothing they can do. The object is way above them. The Nike missiles that they have can't reach these, these, the, these objects. And Kehoe says they keep this completely secret. June the 12th, which is, is also going to, as you'll see later, is a very important date. And June the 14th, the, the big object returns to Washington. This time it's at 79,000 feet, and again, they're unable to do anything about it. This object is just there. And Kehoe relates this to the fact that he figures these are the, the, the two objects, and they're coming down, and this is his Air Force sources are telling him that um, these things are leaving orbit. Now, to tie in with this, and this is another statement that's been quoted, General Nathan Twining on... May the 15th, two days after the third big object sends the East Coast on, on alert over Washington, D.C., Nathan Twining departs from a speech at the Air Force Base in Amarillo, Texas. And what he says is this. The first part has always been quoted by a number of people. He says the best brains in the country are working on this problem. And again, I say, who is twining talking to here. The best brains in, this, in the country are working on the problem of unidentified flying objects trying to solve this riddle. And then he goes on to say 10% of the, the flying saucer reports are unidentified and I go along with this. It's the most important part that I see in terms of you looking at this from the perspective of perhaps he's talking to you in the Pentagon watching these two objects. The final part that is very rarely quoted, twining says this departing from this speech. If they are from Mars, and if there is a people in a world that far ahead of us, I don't think we have anything to worry about. And that's only two days after these large objects are seen. One of the other items that um, I have listed here is July 16, 1954, is the famous Twining-Cutler memo. So again, you have Twining being tied in, and the the July 16th event is not a meeting, it's a special s studies project briefing. They're briefing the MJ-12 people on something. Now, this memo, of course, has come under great controversy, and I only bring it up because Cutler and Twining are the people who are involved in this. And later on, I've already mentioned Twining, later on you're going to hear about Robert Cutler, who was a national security advisor to President Eisenhower. Some of the other events that would show the government was interested in these two objects 
In June of 1954, Deputy Commander of Intelligence at where Blue Book was in Dayton, John O'Mara confirms to Leonard Stringfield that the Air Force is tracking these two objects and that they're, they're seriously watching these two objects. The National Advisory Committee on Aeronautics in the fall of 1954 picks up a signal they say from, from a, a strange satellite. That is confirmed by an astronomer in France who also picks up this signal. In 1954, and this story I've got on my, I'm only going to tell you part of this story. It's a very, very bizarre story. It's told in the CIA um, 1997 whitewash report, and I'm surprised it even told the story. It's a story that's told about the Mayor Sisters in Chicago. And it's on my internet site, and it's called AFA Sends a Message, if you want to read it there. And what happened, in short, I'll tell you the first part of the story. Um, there was a, a fellow by the name of Mills, who was a freelance uh, radio announcer in Chicago on WGN, had John Otto, who was um, a, a UFO researcher in Chicago, and who was also turned out to be a contactee, on his show, and the story is already broken in August of 1954 in Aviation Week about these two satellites. And so they decide that they're going to run a little experiment. They're going to try to talk to these two satellites rotating around the Earth. So at 11.15 during the show, they state, at 11.25, we're going to send a message to these, these two satellites. And what we want the satellites to do is to send a message to the audience. So what they propose to do is that everybody's supposed to get their tape recorder, all the radio audience, and they're going to turn off the studio mics at 11.25. They're going to send the message out, come in, spacemen. They turn, they're going to turn off the studio mics, and they're going to give 15 seconds, and what the aliens are supposed to do is tap into the WGN transmitter and transmit a signal to the audience. So 11.25, they give the signal, come in, spacemen. They shut off the studio mics and they have a radio inside the, the studio, they hear nothing. It's completely silent. So both guys, at 11.30, the show is over. They leave the studio, figure nothing's happened. And the phone starts to ring. There's four people from various areas, Wisconsin, Chicago, that have claimed to have picked up a signal. Now, when I went after the CIA documents for this, the CIA, one of the CIA documents states that they found out that there was a bunch of ham radio operators who also claimed to have picked up a signal. One of the people who picked up a signal was in Chicago. It was two sisters. They were very old ladies that were very interested in UFOs and this sort of thing. They phoned in the studio and they said, we don't think this is very funny. Why, why would you play Jingle Bells? We don't think this is very funny. And they said, well, sorry, we didn't play Jingle Bells. And nothing happened. We, as far as we know, nobody picked anything up. They said, oh, yes, we, we taped this. We picked this thing up and it sounds like Jingle Bells and has this funny noise in the background. So... Basically, they've got this, and it's written up in an, I can't remember the name of the magazine, but it's an it's an avia, it's, um, aviation technical magazine. Writes the story of the Mary sisters and their UFO experiences, and also writes up this story about them sending this signal, or receiving this signal from this test that was done at this radio station. So the CIA sees this, and they decide they've got to get this tape. But of course, the CIA is not involved in UFOs. The only time, on publicly, they've stated they've been involved in the UFOs is the Robertson panel. So they're trying to figure out what they're going to do, how they're going to get this tape. So this is already the spring of 1954. It's somewhere February of 1955, pardon me, after this article is run. 
So they decide what they'll do is it's February, it's close enough to Halloween, so what they did decide they're going to do is they dress up two guys in Air Force officers and they fly these Air Force guys to Chicago to try to get the tape. The first time they're there, the Mary sisters say, no, you can't have the tape, we're not going to give it to you, we're very happy that the government's interested, they couldn't get it. The second time, they, they do, they get the tape. They go back to figure the stories over. Now the rest of the story you're going to have to read on the website, and basically it is in 1957, uh, Leon Davidson, who was with NICAP, suddenly decides that he's going, to, he, he's very interested in this. What, what did the, whoever the Air Force analyzed this thing, and what did they, what did they find out, and the, the, the whole story. He had talked to the, the Mayor sisters. And basically what it comes down to is the CIA gets caught. The CIA is trying to figure out how they're going to cover for the fact that they dressed up two guys as Air Force officers to get this tape. So that's another story that shows the interest that the CIA was desperate to get this tape. And you, this, when you read the article, you see all the desperate things they did to try to cover up the fact that they had tried to get this tape. Another item that I, I mention here is Stuart Aslop, who was a syndicated columnist. And this is a very interesting um, point. There was three observatories, and more observatories were set up to try to track this object. One of the places, for example, was White Sands Missile Range. They used the long-range telescopes at White Sands to try to pick up these two objects. Wilson announces in early 1955 that the uh, Wilson Observatory has been added to the search, and he states that they are confirming that these objects are artificial. They are not, as La Paz said, artificial satellites. A couple weeks later, Aslop, and he, and he says that he's got this from high-ranking government sources and sources inside the National Security Council. A couple weeks later, he writes another article which basically states that Robert Cutler, who was a National Security Advisor to the President, was so angry at his article, so angry at the leaks about the satellites, that the people who worked with him in his office were afraid to be seen with him. And I had a quote from Cutler, and I, I lost it, and I went back to, I, I emailed the Eisenhower Library, and they couldn't find it, but it, Cutler was fanatical about security. But Aslop had written this article, and apparently, according to Aslop, they were just furious that this story had finally leaked, because they, they had kept it secret, and they had sort of maintained the fact that these things were artificial. Now, the final item is the government looks to Mrs. Frances Swan. Now, as I told you before, she was the star quarterback of the AFA team. Mrs. Frances Swan was observed by the following agencies. And what's more important than the agencies is the people inside the agencies that were looking at her. The Frances Swan case was handled by J. Edgar Hoover at the FBI, the head of Navy Intelligence, SB. As I mentioned yesterday, this Art Lundahl, who's a high-ranking CIA officer. The story I'm going to tell you in a minute is about the White House. President Eisenhower handled this case. Um, Air Force it was handled by Blue Book, and Robert Friend um, had, had handled this thing. Uh, FBI sent their documents to Air Force Office of Special Investigations, and the Secret Service handled this, but we don't know who handled it in the Secret Service. And the Canadian government handle, that was Wilbur Smith, who was uh, looking at Mrs. Frances Swan. She was very, very, in, in, many people were very interested in this woman, for whatever reason. 
Now, Francis Swan's story mysteriously starts at exactly the same time as they pick up these objects. It starts in the fall of 1953. Her version of the story is she's hanging up decorations at, the Halloween, at a Halloween party at the town hall in Elliott, Maine, where she lived. And I sort of assume maybe this was the, the same Halloween party that the CIA guys went to, you know, dress up like Air Force officers and take the wives out. She's hanging up these decorations, and a fellow walks in, and she said he was a striking fellow. She'd never seen him before. It's a small, very small town. Everybody knows everybody. This guy is unknown. He walks into the room, and he walks across, and she's hanging up these decorations, and he just walks up to her. He doesn't say anything to her. She talks to him. He walks. He leaves. He comes back in. He walks up to her a second time. He leaves. And she said, I can still remember him to this day. I can remember him if I just look back walking away. It turns out, according to her, this was Atha. And in, this, in April of 1954, she starts getting messages. And in part of these messages, Atha says, that was me at the Halloween dance. And I was supposed to shake your hand, but there was a bunch of people there, and I didn't I was afraid to do it. She's getting a, a, a sharp tone in her left ear. This is how it starts. She is into going to seances and this sort of stuff, but she really isn't into channeling or anything like this. Near the end of April, she starts getting this tone, and she, it's been described a number of ways, like the, the musical note A, a high-pitched uh, sort of noise that disturbs her, it hurts. She's getting messages day and night from Atha and from a second alien by the name of Ponar. And these two aliens are commanding two ships. Alpha is commanding a ship called M4, and Ponar is comma commander of a ship called L11. And as to where they are, Mrs. Swan says, well, these two ships are rotating around the Earth, these huge ships. And I think she describes, don't quote me, but I think she said they were 190 miles across. So, of course, she doesn't know what to do. And she said, this is driving her crazy. She can't sleep. These messages are coming in. And she's getting them through automatic writing. So she goes down, and she goes to Vice, uh, Vice Admiral Knowles, who lived about a mile away in Elliott, Maine. He comes down, and he checks it out. And he asks her a bunch of technical questions about different things. And he's, he's just absolutely amazed at this woman, her ability to, to come to answer these questions based upon her education. So he starts contacting people. He contacts Navy Intelligence. He contacts his friend Wilbur Smith, and Wilbur Smith comes down, and she becomes Wilbur Smith's main contact to AFA. He also contacts President Eisenhower. And that's the story that I tracked two years ago and that I'm going to tell you about. Get on the right sheet here. I was at the Eisenhower Library and there's a set of FBI documents that I show on my, on my website that describe Mrs. The, the story of Mrs. Um, Smith. It also describes Knowles. It blocks out the name, but I can figure out who it is. So I go to the Eisenhower Library, and I go to the archivist, and I say to him, okay, I've got this FBI document, and I'm, I'm looking for this letter that was written to the president. It was written by Admiral Knowles around 1954. And I show him the document, and he says, okay, fine, and he leaves. And he comes back about an hour later, and he says, well, he says, um, I think I, I found only one letter from Admiral Knowles. And he says, the only problem is we don't have the letter anymore. And I said, well, what happened to the letter? He said, well, it was transferred to the Secret Service. 
And I said, well, that's fine. Just uh, tell me the details and I'll go to the Secret Service because I want to get this letter because it was Knowles talking about Swan and apparently it had some of the actual messages a cop, uh, uh, stapled to it. He told me the letter was written May the 9th, 1954. And if you remember, this was when they had these three big objects to send over Washington. He transferred out to the Secret Service on June the 10th, 1954, which is critical because I had a big fight and I have on my website an article called Incident at Eisenhower, and it's, it's the whole story of how I got this, this document and how they tried to stop me from getting this, this what was called a transfer sheet that, that notified the fact that this document had been transferred out of the White House. And it's very important because they were telling me, well, the reason this thing had been sent to the Secret Service is, well, usually somebody's crazy or they're a threat to the President. And I argued at one point with the Assistant Director of the Eisenhower Library, and I said, well, if it was a threat to the President, they would have transferred the letter in, in the first hour. And this, if you're talking about kook letters, I said, this guy's a vice admiral writing to the president. And I said, why would they hold the letter for a month? I said, is this normal procedure for the White House to hold a letter for a month? He said, okay, I see your point. It is not normal procedure for the White House. They get tens of thousands of letters a day. They handle them very quickly. And unless something has gone wrong, they transfer them to wherever they're transferring them right away. So the dates are very important, May the 9th and June the 10th. One of the other things I did at the Eisenhower Library, I was searching everything. I was searching all the contactees. I was trying to find out whether any of the contactees had had um, been in contact with the president. And the way you do that is you run what's called an alpha search. And what, they, what you can do is put anybody's name in and you can say, okay, I've got this person's name. Did he ever have any contact with the president? And they can tell you whether the person ever phoned the president, whether he ever wrote a letter to the president, whether he was ever in a meeting with the president. One of the people I wrote, uh, uh, did an alpha search on was Captain Howard Orville. Orville was described, when you see Kehoe's version of the 54 satellites, he talks about Captain Orville. He was the President's Weather Control Commission. He was the, ran the Weather Control Commission for the, for the President. When I did searches on him, specifically at the Eisenhower Library, I couldn't find anything on the guy. There was nothing. There was, on his agency, there was a couple of small budget-type references in different documents but there really was nothing on him. Now, he's interviewed in 1954, and I'm gonna read this, he's, been intervie he's interviewed twice, and Kehoe writes this up, and I managed to find the actual interview. I'm gonna read the interview to you. It was very strange because we couldn't figure out what Orville's connection was to the satellites, and now I've sort of got a connection. I mentioned the other day, or yesterday, the story about the US Navy running Project Magnet. One of the things that's been discovered is one of the things they were doing is, as well as mapping the Earth's geomagnetic field is they were running weather control modification experiments and that was Orville's business. He was in weather modification and the other job that he had as I understand was to do um, weather reports for Air Force One. Now here's the interview and it's done by a fellow by the name of Corbin who was w with NICAP. It's done on a radio station in um, New York and the interview goes like this. Corbin asks, do you know of any condition under which two such objects could enter the Earth's atmosphere and pick up orbits at 400 and 600 miles? Captain Orville says, no, not that I know of. Your doubts are well justified. So Corbin asks him, if there are two bodies circling, they would be unnatural or not natural. And Captain Orville says, if that should be true, military secrecy would prevent discussion. Corbin asks him, 
Ben, is it not possible that the two bodies, if they are there, might well be space stations? Orville answers, well, that is an interesting thought. I don't know if any set of circumstances, I don't know of any set of circumstances that would account for the two bodies that are now orbiting the Earth. Cor and then Corbin says, but we still have a puzzle of something circling the Earth. And Orville says, yes, we do. In 1957, he's, inter he's interviewed again by Corbin on the same radio station. And he, according to the Nightcap article that, that released this, Orville says, uh, maintains the same ideas that he had on the unknown satellites that he had expressed in 1954. And during the broadcast on October 24, 1957, this is now reading from the Nightcap article, when asked if there was any new information about the unknown satellites, Captain Orville said that it appeared that the military might have kept the matter from publication. From the American people, asked Corbin. In reply, Orville said that he did not wish to call it a deliberate cover-up, but he added, but we didn't hear anything more about it, did we? Now, uh, trying to tie in Orville, when I gave them the, the alpha search to do, they come back, and the archivist brings me a sheet of paper, and I've actually done the piece of paper. He gives me Cap Norville, and he writes down, he says, well, he, he never talked to the president on phone. He never wrote the president. We have nothing there. We only have one incident, but he was in the Oval Office. And of course, here's a guy who you couldn't find in any White House records, and of course, the obvious question is, what is he doing in the Oval Office? Later that day, it took me a while to catch on to this. Later that day, I think I was, a, I was camping there. I was at the campsite, and suddenly I realized the light came on. It's exactly the same date that the Eisenhower people transferred the Swan letter out of the, out of the White House after holding it for a month. So, of course, I run back to the Eisenhower Library, and I start checking these names. Now, the names that are on there, one of them is Louis, w, um, Louis Douglas. And he's the assistant to Orville. And if you can't find anything on Orville, you're not going to find anything on him. So he really doesn't count. He's just an assistant to Orville. And they're in the Oval Office with Eisenhower. And the other two people that are in the office are Donald Quarles and Alan Waterman. So I pull the, the material from the president's schedule. And I start looking at who these people are. Alan Waterman was from National Science Foundation, and guess what his expertise was? Satellites. Donald Quarles was head of research and development for the U.S. Air Force in the fall of 1953, and he was in charge of the long-range experimental radar. He also was an expert on satellites. Two weeks before this uh, June the 10th meeting in the Oval Office, Quarles was in the National Security Council briefing the President and the National Security Council on satellites. Now, it's not the satellites, well, we haven't got the, the actual records, but they're talking about satellites, about trying to put a satellite into orbit themselves. So these people are experts on the satellite thing. At 2 o'clock the afternoon, before I, I the, the final slides I'm going to show are to tie all these people together and, and, the, and to prove to you that these people are experts, the people that were in that Oval Office, either had talked greatly about satellites like um, Orville had, and somehow Kehoe knew the connection, but in the Kehoe files I asked, and, and the people who have the files said they really couldn't find anything that ties him in to the satellites, why he would know about the satellites. 
At 2 o'clock in the afternoon on exactly the same day, it seems these things all happen together, the U.S. Navy intelligence has got a meeting. They've flown back to Elliott, Maine again. They keep flying back and forth, and they've got a meeting with AFA at 2 o'clock in the afternoon. AFA is supposed to uh, come across. Mrs. Smith is supposed to channel him at that time, and they're supposed to ask him all new questions or whatever they were, they were doing with him. It turns out that AFA is always late. At 6 o'clock, she gets a message from Ponar, and she says, AFA is busy. And AFA was always busy, and it's a, a strange little story I'll add. AFA was always busy. They were claiming that they were working on the atomic damage we were doing with our atomic explosions. And AFA was, spent a lot of his time in the Pacific, according to the documents, fixing fault lines that be, had become unstable due to the fact that we were detonating these atomic bombs. Now, the strange thing about that is the fact that in 1953, the idea of plate tectonics, that there was fault lines in the Pacific, was not really known. I mean, it was not discussed. The other strange incident about this is that one of the people who was uh, developed plate tectonics is a guy by the name of Dr. Wilson, who Kehoe identifies as one of the people who worked with Wilbur Smith on Project Magnet. Now, the final one, I need my pointer here. This is your typical, I don't know if you can't even read it here, typical top secret document. It's a memorandum for the president. The subject is Earth satellites. And they're basically discussing the Russians have done us in, tricked us on some, something or another. Can you move that slide down just a bit? No. They're, they're, they're discussing a meeting. And the meeting, the two top names on the meeting for 8.30 in the, in the um, wherever the meeting was being held, the two top people on that, listed on that thing are Quarles and Waterman. Again, a tie-in that these two people are very connected. Now, if we're out of slides here. The two last slides are missing, but I'll tell, I'll tell you what, what, what the two last slides are. When I was at the Eisenhower Library, I started pulling withdrawal sheets for the National Security Council from their satellite file. This is a, a file that has all the stuff on trying to launch the Earth satellite for the Americans. And what, what they have is a whole list of, of different documents when they, when they declassify stuff, there's stuff that they don't want, so they, they, they do a withdrawal and they put a, a sheet in the file to say this, this document's been withdrawn. The documents, when I finally got there, they'd all been declassified, but the list of the documents that they had originally pulled were all still there. And the, most of the documents that, that had been withdrawn were top secret, secret documents from 54, 55. And all these guys are listed. There's, for example, Memo, Cutler, Robert Cutler, Alan Waterman, subject, satellites. Waterman to the president, subject, satellites. Um, uh, Quarles to Waterman, satellites. Quarles to Cutler, satellites and basically goes to show that this Mrs. Swan was taken very seriously, that the idea of the satellites actually made it to the Oval Office, and I firmly believe that the reason these people were brought into the Oval Office on June 10th was to discuss this letter that had come from Admiral Knowles, and that they were seriously trying to figure out, even at the White House level, what they were going to do about these two objects. That's all I have. That's basically the, the rest of the story, and I'm sure there's going to be more details coming out because there, it didn't take much to get these additional details over and above what 
Kehoe and Edwards had written about it in 1954. So I'm sure there's a, an awful lot more material that will come out about these two satellites. Thanks. That's this week's episode of the Paranormal UFO Consciousness Podcast. I'm your host, Grant Cameron, hoping that you will join me for upcoming episodes. Links to my YouTube interviews, books, and my Facebook sites are in the show notes. If you love the podcast or learn something valuable, we'd love for you to subscribe, rate, or give a review on today's episode. If you would like a certain paranormal subject dealt with in the future, please let us know. Until next time, watch this space, and thank you so much for listening.